Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Politics podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today, we are speaking with the Cold War Collection Specialist at the Kamenetz Library and Robert F. Wagner Labor Archives at New York University, Michael Konsowitz. And he's just written his first book, They Said No to Nixon, Republicans Who Stood Up to the President's Abuses of Power. Michael Konsowitz, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me on, Bill. This is a particularly timely book because we are in the middle of a uh, Republican presidency that is highly controversial. President who is seen as, by some, bending, if not breaking, uh, governing norms. And you even have people inside the White House, at least one uh, in the New York Times op-ed saying there are people inside here who are trying to contain and constrain this president from his worst impulses. And much of this seems unusual and abnormal, but this book is a reminder that we have been in a similar place before. And there were Republicans at the time who did thwart Nixon from some of his worst impulses. So it, it, is the Trump presidency what propelled you to write this book? Or did, were you thinking about pursuing Nixon's um, uh approach to governance for different reasons? Yeah, it's just been, uh, uh, well, not a coincidence, but (laughs) I I, I started this project back in 2011. Uh, So back in 2011, yes, Donald Trump, people knew who Donald Trump was. Uh, Birtherism was a big story in 2011, talked about running for the presidency. But no, this, this project did not start because of Donald Trump or the Trump presidency. It started off as a dissertation when I was a graduate student at UC Irvine. Uh, and the reason I was drawn to this topic was, uh, well, for one, while I was a graduate student, I also worked for the National Archives at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Belinda, California, just a few miles away from, from Disneyland. Uh, and while I worked there, I worked on the museum's improved nonpartisan depiction of the Watergate scandal. And I was confronted with some of these stories of Republicans who said no to Nixon, uh, not just Elliot Richardson, you know, who famously stood up during the Saturday Night Massacre, but also Republicans within the IRS and the OMB who stood up to Nixon's worst instincts. And so in 2011, I wasn't thinking about Donald Trump. I, the, the, compar- the point of comparison for me was, was the Bush era. Uh, you know, why didn't Colin Powell resign in 2003? Uh, that, was, that was more in my mind. But since 2011, uh, I completed the, the dissertation, uh, turned the dissertation into a book, changed some sections. Uh, but uh, the dissertation in some ways, or the, the project as a whole, has uh, has has really become more and more relevant over the last two years, uh, even before Donald Trump's victory. Because I think Trump's victory and his entire presidency, in some ways, is an extension of of Nixon's own brand of politics and the way he viewed the presidency. 
Now, there are important ideological differences between the two, uh, especially when it comes to specific policies. But when it comes to a larger view of, of American culture and, and presidential campaigns and defining your message as what you're against, I think there are substantial links between Nixon and Trump. Uh, so in many ways, Trump's victory has, has kind of uh, made sort of an argument that the Republican Party is just as much the party of Richard Nixon as it is uh, the party of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and you, you mentioned the Bush presidency in there. There, there was that famous episode involving uh, James Comey and John Ashcroft, where the, the President Bush wanted to have his uh, warrantless wiretapping program reauthorized. The Justice Department had said it was illegal. Uh, and John Ashcroft, the Attorney General, was, was lying in, in, a, in a hospital bed. And James Comey had to run over there and, and stop Ashcroft from... Uh, you know, rubber stamping what, what Bush wanted to do. So uh, we, I, I don't know if there's only Republicans, maybe, you know, other examples of Democratic presidents where um, there's some resistance from inside the administrations, but uh, it does seem like this is something that uh, is a bit of a pattern. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, uh, resistance within a presidential administration is not just a story about Republicans, but certainly I think if we're talking about recent history, the most dramatic stories have happened during Republic, Republican presidencies. Uh, so there's a reason I focused on Nixon and not another uh, another president. But yeah, your example of Comey during the Bush years show that there are, to a degree, still Republican serv- civil servants who are willing to provide a check on presidential abuses of power, uh, even during the 21st century. So when you think about the Nixon era, you think about Republicans that stood up to Nixon, I imagine the first thing that comes into people's minds are the senators like Barry Goldwater that went to the White House at the very end of the, of the Nixon presidency and said, you know, you're, you're going you're to get impeaching evicted buddies. You better get the heck out of here. Uh, and, and he did. Um, but you focus on and you, and you get into Watergate. Uh, you mentioned Elliot Richardson's role in the book. But a lot of the book is about these other episodes, which are not very well known. Um, so uh, what happened with Nixon and the IRS that prompted the head of the IRS to resist uh, Nixon's push? Well, Nixon, uh, if, any, if people know anything about Nixon and the IRS, they tend to know that uh, there was this enemies list. Uh, and that's, of course... Uh, a very important moment in the Nixon presidency, but it's it's really the culmination of years of attempts to for by the Nixon White House to take over the IRS and use it as a political weapon. Uh, so this starts even as early as 1970, where Nixon and H.R. Haldeman, his chief of staff, and John Ehrlichman, his top domestic advisor, are constantly trying to find ways to elevate pro-Nixon individuals within the IRS to find a commissioner that they think will be loyal to their, to their goals. Uh, and this eventually leads to, uh, well, 1972, just a few months before Nixon's landslide victory over George McGovern, uh, the anti-war Democrat. And Nixon is trying to find ways to enact, well, there's two requests going on in the summer of 1972. Is one, he's obsessed with trying to bring in Larry O'Brien to find out more about his personal finances. So he's constantly telling his chief. Who's Larry O'Brien? Larry O'Brien was the then uh, chairman of the DNC. Of course, the the famous target of the Watergate burglary. 
And so literally weeks after the Watergate break-in, when the story is mostly being ignored by the mainstream press, not entirely, but mostly being ignored, Nixon is telling his advisors that he wants the IRS to bring Larry O'Brien in uh, for a series of interviews to find out what's, you know, what is he hiding? Does he have a substantial amount of money from, from Howard Hughes? Uh, and what happens in the end is the IRS, after after months of resistance, does cave on that single request. They bring in Larry O'Brien, and they actually find out that he's owed a minor refund. Uh, but that episode causes a lot of frustration among the more nonpartisan civil servants in the IRS, especially the then commissioner of the IRS, Johnny Walters, a Republican from South Carolina, Nixon and and. And his team thought that Walters would be a good old-fashioned Southern Republican, someone who'd be pro-Nixon, but they, they totally underestimated his independence. And so while he begrudgingly caved on the O'Brien order, uh, the very next month, John Dean came to his office and presented him with a list of hundreds of Nixon's enemies, whether they were anti-war activists, liberal Hollywood actors, prominent Democrats, uh, this is known as the enemies list, has roughly about five to 600 individuals. So John Dean, the then counselor to the president, uh, this is in September of 1972, gives Johnny Walters the list and makes it very clear that this request is coming from the White House. It's coming from the top. It's coming from Richard Nixon. And Johnny Walters says no. He refuses to fully follow through on the enemies list project. And he takes this list and he he, he, he meets with George Schultz, the then Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, he had been a, 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 a prominent cabinet member in the Nixon administration since the very beginning. And while he also caved on the O'Brien order, when it came to the enemies list, he identified that as an incredibly dangerous partisan project. And he told Johnny Walters, you have my support. And the two of them together stopped the enemies list from being carried out in the fall of 1972. Now, how is it? Here, here's Nixon, someone who clearly uh, believes in weaponizing the bureaucracy, weaponizing the civil service, uh, not uh, allowing it to retain its, its independence. Uh, how do people like Walters and Schultz even get there in the first place? Well, that's a, uh, that's a trickier subject. Um, Based on listening to the Nixon White House tapes, one can see that the early 1970s was, was a, it was a different time. It was a different moment. And even though George Schultz and Johnny Walters both come from fairly conservative backgrounds, Nixon on the tapes shows that he cares about the optics of these picks. And you can see this when it comes to George Schultz. You can especially see it when he's talking about Elliot Richardson. He wants to have the prestige that's a, attached to a you know a fairly well-known economist like George Schultz. He definitely wants that with Elliot Richardson. These are figures who are respected by the establishment. And even though Nixon detests the you know the Ivy League establishment of the late '60s, early '70s. They represent enough of a part of the Republican Party at that moment where he realizes he has to placate that way. So that means that he's going to have to pick certain individuals who are not loyal to him. Uh, having said all that, Nixon also, uh, even though he is an authoritarian and he certainly looks like one in this book, he's also incompetent. And so that explains the Johnny Walters pick. 
he picks Johnny Walters because Johnny Walters is friendly with John Mitchell, Nixon's first attorney general of the United States. It's really that simple. He thinks this guy's friendly with John, uh, with John Mitchell, so he's a pro-Nixon guy. And they never really grill the guy in terms of whether or not they think he's going to follow through on their orders. They just assume that because he's a John Mitchell guy. Uh, so fortunately for the country, Nixon does not really, really press these issues too much when they're making these picks. Following his reelection, and this is the scary thing, when you're listening to the tapes from November and December of 1972 and even January of 1973, what you hear is a president who's much more determined to fix his prior mistakes. He's much more determined to create a very loyal administration. Uh, so one can only imagine that if Watergate did not become a national issue in early 1973, uh, what could have happened in terms of Nixon fully politicizing the bureaucracy in his administration? Now, you're not, you know, as much intimate knowledge of the Trump presidency as you do the Nixon presidency because you have the advantage of, of, of history. Um, but uh, in, in the case of hiring somebody like Walters with that kind of minimal information, is, is there some sort of an inherent handicap that presidents have? They have to staff an entire bureaucracy in a very short window of time. And so you, you have to make those kind of snap decisions. And so you, you base it on that kind of whisper of information, and then you end up with people who aren't as loyal as you think they are. Is that true with, with both Trump and Nixon, do you think? I think that's certainly true, and I think that's that's a very good uh, explanation for why we have someone like Rod Rosenstein as Deputy Attorney General of the United States. Um, you know, if you're going to fu- point to a figure in in the Trump administration who, in some ways, resembles some of these figures that I study and or that I really highlight in this book, uh, it's Rod Rosenstein. So, you know, why does he have this position? He does not have the background of someone who would be incredibly loyal to Trump, yet he is the deputy attorney general of the United States. And when it comes to to the Russian investigation, he basically is the attorney general of the United States for that particular investigation. Now, you note in the book that uh, Nixon had a grudge against the IRS because he said the IRS went after me uh, during the Kennedy years. Yes. Uh, and uh, one, do you, do you know if that's true? No, uh, more or less. No, <laughs> it's a complicated subject that we could we could spend a whole uh, interview on. Um, were there mistakes or were there abuses of power in previous administrations? Sure. Was it completely managed by the Kennedy White House? There's little to no evidence of that. Nevertheless, Nixon believed the rest of the uh, the rest of his life that the audits that he dealt with, whether it was in 1962 or in other periods, uh, were being directed by the Kennedy White House. We don't have the information to back that up. So yeah, I, I ask this because uh, I, I think there's a perception that years ago there was a lot more hardball played at the presidential level. Uh, you know, e- even today, you see folks on the left sort of talk wistfully about how Lyndon Johnson you know, twisted arms and made threats and dangled favors and uh, exacted punishments and the like. You know, why, why, and why, why couldn't Obama you know, be that rough to get, get his way? Um, right. So it, it, if you put yourself in 1970, uh, was there more acceptance 
of of using the IRS as a political weapon, and therefore Nixon went into it thinking this is what everybody does, and so I get to do it too. Uh, or was Nixon really ex- exceptional in, in undermining integrity of bureaucratic institutions like that? It's a good question, and uh, I, I certainly do not want to romanticize what happened during Democratic presidencies. Whether we're going back to even Franklin Roosevelt, or if we're talking about Con- Kennedy and Johnson, like Nixon often did on the tapes. Nixon is exceptional not because he's the first president to misuse his powers or have his underlings misuse their powers, uh, but the difference with Nixon and what makes him exceptional is the level of management. The fact that he's bringing in all of these abuses that happened throughout most of the Cold War era presidencies, and he's bringing them into the Oval Office. And, and while he does not pay much attention to appointments like Johnny Walters, he's paying much more attention to other appointments and, and carrying out these nefarious plans. Uh, that's what makes him truly exceptional. And while we do not have extensive White House tapes for other presidents, uh, you know, we have some tapes for Johnson. We have some tapes for Kennedy. For Nixon, he, of course, famously recorded everything for a two and a half year period. So, you know, you have to take that into consideration. Still, if you listen to the Nixon tapes, you can see that Nixon's level of management in terms of looking after all of these projects, whether it's carrying out the enemies list, whether it's punishing universities like MIT, that's what makes him truly exceptional uh, when compared to even figures like Johnson and Kennedy. And did you, uh, how much of the tapes did you listen to? I mean, I I would if I had to guess um, based on just because I've been asked this and I, I've I've taken notes on I spent most of 2013 listening to the tapes on on Fridays and Saturdays for for like a six to eight hour period. Now, of course, that involves a lot of rewinding uh, to to re-listen to certain conversations. But my best estimate is I listened to about two to three hundred hours of the, of the tapes. Um, now, the collection, in terms of what's accessible, there's uh, roughly about 3,000 hours of recordings from the Nixon White House tapes. There's still about six to 700 hours that have not been released to the public. Uh, so there have been other scholars who will certainly listen to more of the tapes than I have. Uh, but I feel like I've listened to enough to get a sense of the culture of the Nixon presidency. Now, another episode that you focus on uh, in the book outside of Watergate is his uh, desire to punish the nation's uh, universities, and in particular MIT. Uh, why, why is it that Nixon was so obsessed with his reputation uh, in academia? Well, I mean, this. I, I, I should I should begin my response by saying that this book is is not a Nixon biography. So, for anyone who's really interested in zeroing in on Nixon's psyche, this only provides well some of that just through you know the conversations that I provide in this book. Uh, but it's fair to say that Nixon's, you know, own upbringing and, and his teenage years, his childhood did play a factor in how he viewed MIT, the Ivy league and the nation's, you know, education, uh, the, the, the nation's, uh, elite and the nation's, you know, Eastern establishment. Uh, let's say that, um, Nixon famously received a scholarship from Harvard when he was a high school student uh, but he could not leave California because his family uh, was was working class. 
and needed him to stay at home to take care of the family's grocery store, uh, the family's shop, uh, especially because his older brother was dying at the time. And so because of, of his economic background, uh, because of the health of his, of his sibling, Richard Nixon never went to Harvard and he went to Whittier College instead. This is something that a lot of historians justifiably conclude influenced his later views of the Eastern establishment, Harvard and Yale and MIT. Uh, when he's a politician and during the late 40s and early 50s, he always felt alienated from that establishment. This is something that comes up time and time again throughout his political career, even when he's vice president, but especially when he's president. And so in the spring of 1970, after he announces the invasion of Cambodia uh, in April, on April 30th, 1970, you have a wave of anti-war protests. And Nixon comes up with the idea to cut off federal funds to MIT. MIT then is the number one recipient of, of uh, grants coming from the Defense Department in order to sponsor research related to the development of weapons for the use uh, during the Vietnam War. And so Nixon, weirdly, is actually on the same side as the anti-war protesters in terms of he wants to get the military off of our nation's elite campuses. The difference being is that he wants to, to give that money to good pro-Nixon schools. He mentions Ohio State. Uh, he mentions schools in the South. He mentions schools in Texas. And so he wants to take all of the military research funds in MIT, that would be the first test case, but also Harvard, Yale, and the UC system, uh, uh, and give them to good old-fashioned pro-Nixon schools. Uh, so it's not, a, he's not, um, you know, obviously uh, an anti-war protester. He's the president of the United States carrying out the war in Vietnam, but he weirdly shares the same goal of kicking the military off these campuses, uh, but just giving them to some other school. Uh, so what happens? So who? Yeah. who Sorry, go on. Well, so what happens with this order is that it's initially dismissed as a rant by H.R. Haldeman and a lot of the White House staff. But the the problem they they deal with, as is often the case with Nixon's rants, is that it comes up over and over again. And so my research shows that there people were actually following through on this order in 1972 and early 1973. And once again, just like in in in, when it came to the enemies list and the IRS, George Schultz plays a, a major role. So George Schultz, along with three assistant directors uh, within the Office of Management and Budget, uh, Paul O'Neill, uh, who famously resigned during the George W. Bush administration, Ken Dam, and William Morrill, these are three assistant directors in Nixon's OMB, refuse to carry out this order. They refuse to punish MIT because of the presence of anti-war protests. Watergate then becomes a national story, and fortunately, this order fades away later on in 1973. Now, I, I know this isn't the focus of the book, but I'm struck by the fact that Paul O'Neill was one of the people involved in in blocking that order, and then he gets to, then he ends up in Bush's cabinet, where he becomes a, a thorn in the side of the Bush administration, uh, ends up uh, leaving in a huff in the first term and cooperating with a. Uh, with a with a book critical of the entire administration in Bush's uh, first term, how, how does that guy get into the Bush administration after showing his cards that he was not um, a blindly partisan team player? Well, I think when it comes to Paul O'Neill, um, 
he uh, is someone who's well respected among, you know, uh, certain Republicans, at least, I guess, by today's standards, moderate Republicans. He was he could even be fairly described as a moderate in the 1970s. Uh, but he was a, a, a pretty important economic advisor to George H.W. Bush. And so I think that would explain his appointment. He also knew Dick Cheney going back to the Nixon and Ford era. Uh, Dick Cheney, of course, was a very different figure back then in the 1970s. And so through these different personal connections and through just being a, a likable guy, I think that explains why he was selected to be a part of the George W. Bush administration. But it also explains why he did not last long. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he's a, he's a very interesting uh, figure uh, that kind of links the two eras together. So these battles that Nixon is having with, uh, with, with, with these resistance staffers, the resistance staffers are generally of the moderate Eisenhower Republican ilk. Uh, and you see people today sometimes talk about Nixon as, as he is a moderate Republican of the Eisenhower ilk. He was Eisenhower's vice president. He did uh, sign the law that created the EPA. He did, you know, reach out to communist China. You know, sometimes you even see on the on the left people will, will say, you know, you know, you're you're you're. Some Democrats are more conservative than Richard Nixon was because Nixon did all these wonderful liberal things. Um, but uh, contemporaneously, it, it really seems like he was not at all trying to elevate and strengthen the modern wing of the party. He was battling them inside the White House. Yes, I think that's true. And that's that's an argument. Well, it's one of the main arguments in this book. And when I worked at the Nixon Library, this is an argument that we were confronted with quite often. That uh, especially, you know, in 2010, 2011, with the rise of the Tea Party and the Republican Party becoming arguably even more right wing than it already was, uh, you heard arguments even made by the then president of the United States. You heard Barack Obama saying, look, you know, uh, uh, Obamacare is, is, is in some ways uh, not as progressive as, as what Nixon proposed in 1973, 74, you know, highlighting Nixon's own progressive uh, record. Uh so there's there's a few things with that. It's a, it's a problematic argument to say the least. Um, I'll start off by saying that yes, Nixon, of course, is not your traditional conservative ideologue. Uh, you know, he, he, he's not he's not even Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, he's now a fierce believer in ideological conservatism. However, he's not a moderate. He's not, and he's certainly not a liberal. He's a president who operates within the final stages of the New Deal era. That's who he is. Uh, and when you listen to the Nixon White House tapes, you can certainly hear not only the viciousness that he has towards his political opponents against liberals and the left, but you can certainly hear just how opportunistic he is. You know, you can hear just that he's not a, a, a believer in the EPA. Uh, William Rockleshouse, who then later on plays a pretty important role in the Saturday Night Massacre as a deputy attorney general who resigns in protest right after Elliot Richardson, he was the first head of the EPA. And he's constantly battling with the Nixon White House in order to make the EPA more powerful. The Nixon White House wants to rein it in. Uh, it's basically created, or at least the Nixon White House is fine with it, because one, there's a Democratic Congress, and two, Nixon sees it as an important political issue. Uh, to uh, to kind of co-opt it from Ed Muskie, who he believes is going to be the Democratic nominee, the then senator from Maine uh, in 1972. And so Nixon's 
uh, now semi kind of reputation as being the nation's last liberal really does not take into account his own personal view on some of these issues. Foreign policy, it's a, it's a bit trickier when you're talking about either his you know, visit to China or his efforts to make peace with the Soviet Union. Uh, that's that. I think that deserves a certain level of nuance. But when it comes to domestic politics, Nixon is an opportunist. And Nixon, when it comes to campaigning and when it comes to presidential power, he repeatedly aligns himself with the, the more conservative wing of not only his administration, but the entire Republican Party. We're talking with uh, Michael Konsowitz, author of the new book, They Said No to Nixon, Republicans Who Stood Up to the President's Abuses of Power, published by University of California Press. Uh, so let's move to uh, the person who uh, is the focus of the latter half of the book, and that is Elliot Richardson. Um, he is known for being one of the victims of the Saturday Night Massacre, but he was given Nixon problems before he was even uh, attorney general, right? That's true. Uh, it's it's worth noting, though, that when it when he had these battles with Richard Nixon, he would, up until the Saturday Night Massacre, he would eventually side with Nixon and choose to be a loyal soldier. And it's why in May of 1973, when Elliot Richardson is announced as the attorney general of the United States, uh, in the wake of a series of resignations, because Watergate's becoming more of a national issue, H.R. Haldeman resigns, Ehrlichman resigns, Nation is now paying attention to Watergate. Richardson's appointed, and you can find a series of reports in the mainstream media where people are afraid that, that Elliot Richardson is too loyal to the president. He has shown through his previous actions that, yes, he has an independent streak, but it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, he's going to cave inside with the president. So the moments that you're referring to is that in the spring of 1970, uh, Elliot Richardson is the undersecretary of state. Uh, and he, although he has serious reservations about the process that led to the invasion of Cambodia in April of 1970, he ultimately sides with the president, even though several of his key assistants resign in protest. Uh, he publicly defends the Nixon administration in May of 1970, even though he has shown clear signs of not being entirely on board with that decision. Later on, he's the head of HEW, uh, Health Education and uh, Welfare. And in that position, he has clear differences with the Nixon White House that really highlight that there are serious limitations to this argument that Nixon is the last liberal. So I, I, can, I can point out two really quickly. Uh, one, Elliot Richardson was much more in favor of a fairly progressive school busing program. Uh, he is basically slapped down by the Nixon White House for pitching this plan and is forced to basically accept Nixon's much more limited uh, plan when it came to school busing and the attempt to further desegregate the South. Uh, later on in 1971, uh, Elliot Richardson is one of several moderates and liberals in the administration who are proposing a fairly progressive child care program that will provide government-subsidized childcare across the country for working-class Americans. Once again, Elliot Richardson is slapped down by the Nixon White House. This is a key moment in the Nixon presidency where the Nixon administration, in a really important way, listens to the conservative movement. They listen to uh, the conservatives in their own administration, like Pat Buchanan, who say that this childcare program 
would would lead us towards the path of the Soviet Union. Uh, so that's another clear policy difference between Elliot Richardson and Richard Nixon. But like I said, Richardson would choose to be the loyal soldier. He had a respect for the presidency. And so that's what led to a lot of anxiety in the spring of 1973 when Elliot Richardson is chosen to be the Attorney General of the United States. You can hear a lot of this on the tapes where Richard Nixon is not entirely comfortable with choosing Elliot Richardson, but he knows it's going to please the establishment. He knows that the media likes Richardson, but he also says, you know, he has chosen to be loyal in the past. And so all of this kind of shapes the decision he makes uh, to choose Richardson as his attorney general. He thinks he's getting it both ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, it, but it, quickly, it quickly unravels, and I'd say within weeks, <laughs> Richard Nixon regrets his decision to choose Richardson as, his, as the head of the Justice Department. I suppose much like Trump did with uh, Jeff Sessions and Ron Rosenstein. <laughs> of course. Uh, the interesting thing about Jeff Sessions that came out about a year and a half ago is that even though Jeff Sessions is now this, this figure who's not getting along with Donald Trump, uh, there was a report that came out that Jeff Sessions uh, and his staff took down a portrait of Elliot Richardson in the in in the Justice Department that had been hanging there for years. Uh, he, of course, also took down portraits of Democrats, but Elliot Richardson was this one portrait that had been up there for decades. And for reasons that remain unknown, we can only speculate, uh, his staff took down a portrait of Elliot Richardson. So to, to bring us to the Saturday Night Massacre, once Richardson is there, uh, is he planning to uh, be aggressive towards Richard Nixon, or was he planning to be loyal uh, when he first uh, uh, arrived in that post? I think his plan was to be, he really saw himself as someone who could be a fair uh, arbiter between the Nixon White House and the newly created Watergate Special Prosecution Force led by Richardson's former law professor, Archibald Cox, uh, former solicitor general during the Kennedy years. Uh, uh, like I said, there was probably no better representative of the Eastern establishment uh, of that time, other than maybe even Elliot Richardson. So Richardson really saw himself as someone who could fix this crisis. He certainly wasn't someone who was fully convinced that the president was guilty. Several members of his staff maybe were convinced of that pretty early on. But Elliot Richardson repeatedly tries to both protect the interests of Archibald Cox's staff, but also tries to protect the Nixon White House. This frustrates many people uh, in the Justice Department, especially those who are working for Archibald Cox. Um, and so... Uh, what happens to, uh, to tip Richardson over and put him firmly on the opposite side of Richard Nixon? So what happens is basically the, the week of the Saturday Night Massacre. Uh, that is really the only, if you're looking at the archival records, there's no sign that Richardson is fully turning against the president until that week. Uh, even that week, he's willing to accept a rather weak compromise between the Nixon White House and Cox's staff. Uh, the Nixon White House comes up with a plan known by many as the Stennis Compromise, where a single senator who was a uh, named John Stennis, uh, then Democratic senator from, from the South, 
who was very pro Nixon, uh, was in his 70s, was known to be hard of hearing, especially after he was mugged outside of his house earlier that year. He would be the one person to listen to the subpoenaed Nixon White House tapes. And then he and his staff would provide transcripts to Archibald Cox and his staff. Elliot Richardson is just so desperate for a compromise that he actually accepts this plan uh, and takes it to Archibald Cox. Archibald Cox justifiably rejects it, (laughs) but says he's willing to further negotiate with the Nixon White House. He says that he's willing to use this at least as a starting point, but he says he cannot accept this compromise. The Nixon White House then basically tells both Elliot Richardson and Archibald Cox, well, negotiations are over. Archibald Cox, if he does not accept this, uh, he has to be fired because this is the president's final offer. So throughout this process, you can see that both Elliot Richardson and even to a lesser extent Archibald Cox are fairly moderate in their demands of the Nixon White House. Uh, And why is it you think that Nixon didn't meet them halfway? Well, I think Richard Nixon throughout this whole process knows that he's guilty. (laughs) Uh, He he knows he has to limit access to the tapes. Uh, So that's that's the only way to explain Nixon's actions. and it's something that we can't forget when we tell the story of Watergate. And we can't forget that when we speculate what could have been done with the White House tapes. Why couldn't have Nixon been more forthcoming? He knows that if he if he's even just the least bit honest in this whole process, people are going to figure out he's guilty. And that's certainly what happens in the following summer when the Supreme Court rules that he has to turn over his White House tapes. Uh, the one thing uh, I, had, uh, I had not known uh, after... Uh, Richardson is fired in the Saturday Night Massacre. That his his stock kind of rises. He's even, he's even talked about as being a possible presidential candidate or vice presidential candidate, uh, sort of a last gasp of uh, the Republican moderates. But uh, but his political career doesn't exactly take off. No, it it certainly doesn't. Um, part of it is is certainly Richardson's own politics, being a moderate in an increasingly conservative Republican Party in the 1970s and 80s, but part of it is his own personality. Um, unlike James Comey, and in terms of how his book was marketed, Elliot Richardson is terrible at marketing himself. Uh, you know, months after the Saturday Night Massacre, uh, he gets tons of speaking requests. He, he gets paid a lot of money for these speeches, but his own aides, uh, there was one that I interviewed. His name is J.T. Smith, and he was a, a pretty crucial assistant during Saturday Night Massacre and all these other things that we've talked about. He told me, he said that Elliot Richardson would often begin his lectures with, you know, a standing ovation, people who are welcoming as the hero of the Saturday Night Massacre. But, you know, by the end, people would be, you know, half asleep. A lot of people would have left early because Elliot Richardson was not interested in fighting it out with the president in a very public way. He did not want to give all these juicy insider stories about what it was like to be Nixon's attorney general. Instead, he spent most of his time talking about his philosophy of good government and how important it was, especially during the constitutional crisis. And he does this again in his own memoir. He gets you know a lot of money for this memoir, but it doesn't sell that many copies. It's called The Creative Balance, which of course is a terrible title. Um, and, it, and, and it provides a fairly standard overview of the Saturday Night Massacre and does not really go after Richard Nixon. So that partially explains why Richardson's star soon fades away in the 1970s. He's briefly talked about as a potential vice presidential pick 
by Gerald Ford in 1976. Uh, so is William Ruckelshaus, but Ford's staff basically concludes that they can't pick someone who's known to be a liberal slash moderate in the Republican Party. Richardson even tries to run for an open Senate seat in 1984. Uh, it was uh, Paul Songus's Senate seat in Massachusetts. And everyone thinks that Elliot Richardson is a shoo-in for the Republican nomination. Uh, he was going to face a then young John Kerry. Uh, but Richardson is actually clobbered in the GOP primaries in 1984 by a very Trump-like figure named Ray Shamey, uh, a Boston-area businessman who constantly criticizes Elliot Richardson for not being pro-Reagan enough, for being too liberal, too moderate. And he loses uh, by about 20 points in 1984. And that moment really shows you 10 years after the Saturday Massacre that Richardson is isolated from much of the Republican Party, even in the mid-1980s. So uh, what do you think... Uh, people should take away from this book in terms of our politics today? Should we look at this as uh, pure nostalgia, a, a time of yore where there were some honorable Republicans willing to stand up to a president? Or is it a reminder that uh, even uh, when things look very dark, um, typically somebody does step up and it may be very quietly. You may not know about it at the time. Uh but there are, there are people of honor there that, that lurk in the halls of bureaucracy and make themselves known eventually. I, I think it could be both. Uh, not to kind of, uh, I guess, uh, go with the easy answer in this, but it can be both. Because, uh, yes, there have been some rumblings and signs that there actually are civil servants, even in the Trump administration, who may be able to rein in uh, you know, Trump's, Trump's worst instincts, similar to how these figures did in the Nixon administration. But at the same time, we have to fully confront that, you know, that we can't just take comfort in the Watergate narrative, you know, that in the end, you know, the system worked. It worked, but it worked you know, because of a series of individual decisions that could have very easily gone another way. But it also worked because the nation's political culture was significantly different back then. Uh, to return to a previous point, Nixon felt like he had to pick people like Elliot Richardson uh, d- during a very crucial moment during his presidency. Uh, I don't think that incentive is, is there in, in the 21st century. Uh, what part of the Republican Party would... Donald Trump be placating if he chose an Elliot Richardson-like figure to be a key member of his administration. He could even choose someone like Mitt Romney, <laughs> who's, who has a history of, even though he has his own moderate credentials, has a history of, like I said, uh, moving right whenever necessary. Uh, so we need to, like I said, we need to both remind ourselves that, yes, there were civil servants during the Nixon era who were, uh, who were willing to stand up to a corrupt president. And so it's fair to conclude that there may be people who are willing to do the same. At the same time, though, we don't have the culture to support those individuals uh, within the Republican Party like we did in the 1970s. And that's also important to acknowledge. The book is They Said No to Nixon, Republicans Who Stood Up to the President's Abuses of Power. Michael Consowitz, thanks so much for being on New Books in Politics. Thank you, Bill.